You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. All right, so here's the deal. 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. We've been walking through 1 Peter since January the 10th together. It, it, and it began, so Peter's writing, he's writing these Christians in Asia Minor, they're going through all of this suffering. He begins, listen, rejoice, you're going through various trials, and it's okay, because your identity is in Jesus, it's not in these trials that you have, and Jesus is faithful. He can be faithfully trusted at every area. And that your sufferings and your circumstances, they don't define you because God is doing something in the midst of that that you can't possibly even fully know until you see him face to face. And so he's going to end the letter with some final words. He's going he's to speak to the elders uh, in the presence of the congregation, in the hearing of the congregation. And then he's going to turn to the congregation and say, here's how we should all live to, with one another. And then he's going to talk about the devil. All right, so... Here's the outline for this morning. Elders good, devil bad, all right? Didn't see anybody write that down, but that's all right. Um, Let's look at the elders good for a second. Look with me in chapter 5 of 1 Peter. He says, so I exhort the elders among you. He's, He's letting them know as the letter is being read aloud, all right, the elders are going to be on the spot. All the congregation looks at him, and he says this, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed. Right here, I just want you to see Peter's humility right here. I mean, of all the things that Peter could say about himself, he calls himself, listen, I'm a fellow elder. Well, one of the things to notice is, is that he, he doesn't describe himself by his past failings. He doesn't say, hey, listen, I'm Peter. I'm the, I'm the guy that the night Jesus was arrested, I, I denied him three times. It's not his identity. But he also hasn't branded his success either, has he? So many leaders, branders, he doesn't say, all right, I'm Peter. If you want to know more about me, go to theapostlepeter.com. You can read. I've got a transcript of my Acts sermon on there. And uh, he doesn't do any of that. He I'm a fellow elder. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a leader on par with all the other leaders that God is. I mean, we have a chief shepherd. The chief shepherd is Jesus. He's the one that leads us. We lead underneath him and in submission to him. That's how he's speaking to these elders. And then he goes on in two to instruct them. Here's what you're supposed to do. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. He says, look, shepherd the flock. Lead them. The the, the idea is that you lead with a view, with with an aim to provide for the needs. So you you shepherd, you provide for the needs of the congregation, of the the sheep that I have put you in charge of to, 
to care, as, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, to care for the souls of those you've been entrusted to as one who will give an account. I mean, so elders, if you're here this morning, I hope you're here this morning. Peter's writing, instructing the elders in the hearing of the congregation to care for, to lead in a way that provides for the needs of those you have watched care over. And the writer of Hebrews, he says, listen, you're going to give an account for the souls. I don't know how the accounting exactly works. I don't know what it is, but there's some accounting. There's some moment in which the, the bride of Christ, the, in all of its expressions, the local churches, Bethel, will be presented to Jesus. You will be presented as a body of Christ to the bridegroom. And the elders will stand there and give an account for the watch care over the souls. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say it this way, though. He says, do this in a way. Listen, let your, ensure that your leaders serve with joy or it's of no advantage to you. I mean, there's this idea that the leaders, the elders, serve the congregation with joy. If they don't serve with joy, it's vanity. It's of no advantage to you. So, so I, I would say this. There's kind of a couple of kinds of people in a church. There are those that um, really seek to empower, to encourage, to the, the joy of their leaders. That if your leaders serve you with joy, your elders serve you with joy, that's, that's advantage for you. There are also others I've known, that not in this service, they're all in the first service, that see it somehow as their, I don't know where we got this, as a job of somebody in the church to absolutely suck the joy and life out of those that lead them. That doesn't mean, listen, if, if there are questions or comments or, hey, listen, I don't, I don't see where we're going. I don't understand this. Man, you absolutely bring those things to the elders. You absolutely find an elder and say, hey, would you take me to coffee? I'll buy you coffee. Help me understand this. Those are good things. But the idea of finding a leader and taking aim. Peter says, man, don't, don't do that. Leaders, elders don't have to say, hey, follow me. That they would live in such a way that the congregation wanted to follow their leadership. In fact, he says it this way, being examples to the flock. That word examples, it, it, it means, it, it, literally, it's the word type to be a type of Christ for the congregation, that you would look at the elders so, so you, would, you would know what to imitate. You, you would know the, the maturity to pursue, even in their, all their fallibility, all their finiteness, that we'd look to the elders as our examples. I tell my, told my son, listen, if something happens to me, those men, that's what you're to look like. That's what I want you to be. If I... 
told my daughters, listen, if something happens to me, marry a guy like that. Look for that in the one that you'll spend the rest of your life with. It's the, it's the charge to the elders in the hearing of the congregation. And then in verse 4, he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the unfading crown of glory. That, that in this life, in these temporary moments, leadership doesn't lead to glory right now. Leadership leads more often to suffering. In fact, remember what he said? He said, uh, uh, he looked to Jesus, he, he witnessed, he's a witness of the sufferings. He knows, he knows what he's in for. Elders, you know what you're in for if you lead people. Leadership doesn't lead to glory if you do it right. It leads to you giving your life away for those that you lead. Oftentimes it will lead to suffering. As say to the, we say to the elders, we warn the elders as they come on the elder board, hey, listen, you, you, your, your life just became a target for the enemy. You, your life just, you, you became, you, you are now stepping into ground zero of suffering for the congregation. That leaders will oftentimes suffer on behalf of those that they lead. And you can find any one of our elders on the list, the back of the bulletin, call them up and say, hey, tell me what it's been like being an elder. And I, they'll say a couple of things. One, they'll say, man, it's been a great joy. It has. And there's been a lot of hardship and difficulty that's come my way. And Peter says in verse 4, there's an unfading crown of glory that the chief shepherd brings with him. I think maybe that's one way to say it, that the reward, that, that what you've been called to, elder, can't be rewarded in this life. It's, it's too big. It's too challenging. It's too significant and, and important. There is no reward for it in this life. It comes by the hand of of the chief shepherd. Now in verse 5, he, he's going to say, so likewise, you who are younger, so everybody else that's listening, be subject to the elders. So submit to them. Encourage them. Lead where they follow. Imitate their life. And then he moves in the middle of verse 5, he says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, all of us, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You know, there's this sense that the way that the word oppose is used, it's a military word. There's the sense in which Peter is saying that with full military might, with the might of an army, God opposes pride in you and in me. The problem is our pride is kind of our natural default, isn't it? 
It's what we wake up and put on every day if we're not thinking about it. That's why he says, clothe yourself in humility. Put, put on the apron of service, if you will. That we would live with one another in a way that says, listen, I am not the most important person here. I'm seeking the interests of others. I'm seeking your good. There's two kinds of people, two kinds of churches for that matter. You know them, don't you? The, the here I am people and the there you are people. You know, the here I am people, they walk into a place and they are ready to announce, here I am. <laughs> I know you were waiting for me. Here I am. And then there's the there you are people, right? Where they walk into a place and they say, oh yeah, there you are. There you are. What kind of person are you? You know, here I am people, they're interested in what others are going to do for them. Humility, that's not their defining characteristic. There you are, people. They're interested in others. Here I am, people. They're consumers. There you are, people. They minister and care for people that are around. Here I am, people. Find it very difficult to be in community. There you are, people. They create community wherever they go. You know, uh, back in the olden days, um, Starbucks, this is the old days, <clears throat> before the foundry. But Howard Schultz, who was the CEO at the time, he wrote this book called Pour Your Heart Into It. And he wrote it about his philosophy of Starbucks. And people were wondering, man, how did, how did this thing, we, we went from people getting, you know, coffee at McDonald's to now people pay $5 for a cup of coffee and sit around at Starbucks. And so he, he goes on to explain that what really was behind it, his vision behind it, was that he was try, trying to create this, uh, this place where people could step into. It was a third place. And there was home was your first place, work was your second, this would be a third place. But that you'd, that you'd come in, you'd enjoy a great cup of coffee, but that your experience would be outstanding. And the way that they ensured the outstandingness of this experience was that they put all of their baristas through training. See, we didn't even know the word barista until Starbucks came around. But they weren't employees, they were partners. And before the partner got the green apron, they went through this training, and Schultz defined it as the training. It was three letters, C. D-R. Connect, discover, and respond. And every barista had to master this until they got the, before they were able to get the green apron. And the idea is that you would walk in to a Starbucks, you'd see someone with a green apron, and you knew who was there to serve you. You knew who was there to take care of your needs. And the idea is when somebody walked in, the person in the green apron would seek to make a connection with that person. To discover something about them and what their need was, if coffee can be a need, and then to respond. And that they were there, clothed in the green apron of humility, if you will, 
to serve the one that walked in the door. It's a very good picture for what it means for us to clothe ourselves in humility with each other, to clothe ourselves in a posture that says, man, when, I, when I'm with you and I see you, I want to connect with you. I want to discover what's going on with you and respond to you in a way that encourages your faith in Christ. Let me ask that. That's marriage. Is that? How does the apron of service look in your marriage? Are you connecting with your spouse? Are you discovering their needs? Are you respond? Are you, are you a there you are kind of a spouse? Or a here I am spouse? Probably what's in the back of Peter's mind here is a scene that we find in John chapter 13. And we won't turn there, but I'll tell you, 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 you may remember it. It's, it's the night of the Last Supper, and they've, they've finished around the table, and Jesus gets up and takes off his outer clothing, strips down to essentially a, a servant's attire, and wraps a towel around his waist, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. And he comes to Peter, and Peter says, no, 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 you, no, you, you can't wash my feet. No, you're not going to wash my feet. And then Jesus says to him, listen, if I don't wash your feet, you'll have no part with me. To which Peter says, well, then, then wash all of me. See, Peter didn't want him to wash his feet because he, he was embarrassed at the humility of Jesus. It, it was a sting to, to let the Son of God get on his knees and to wash his feet. And yet, Peter came to learn this is what it means to love each other. It's the same language that he uses. I remember when I was in seminary on the, on the central quad of the, of the seminary um, in Dallas, there is a life-size bronze sculpture of Jesus washing Peter's feet. And we, you'd walk by it a, a thousand times if you were a student there. But I remember taking this class with a guy named Bill Lawrence. And Dr. Lawrence took us out there one day during this, this pastoral ministry class. And we just sort of sat in front of the, of the sculpture and just looked at it. And he said, well, all right, guys, tell me what you see. And just began to observe it and make comments about it and one of the things you notice if you were to look at is how strong Peter is seated there. There are the veins bulging. He's, he's huge. He's, he's, he's a massive man. He's full of strength. And, and yet there is something about his eyes. The one who did this is masterful. His eyes have this amazement, this wonder in them as they are staring at Jesus who is below him in the frame on his knees with the towel wrapped around his waist. His left hand has Peter's right ankle in it and the foot is in the basin. And his right hand has the towel and it's you can see in the sculpture, the, the way that the artist did it, the, the strength and the muscles of Jesus' body 
all his strength and determination poured into the serving and humble posture below his friend there. It's, it's a moving picture that Jesus in all of his strength is serving God. He's serving Peter. And the cost is humility. See, God opposes the proud. Gives grace to the humble. In verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God, that He might exalt you at the proper time. See, your, your goal in life is not to ascend to greatness. Your goal in life as a believer is to descend in humility to others and to God, and He is the one that exalts. Listen, man's hopelessly seeking his own rise to glory. And yet what the Bible says over and over and over again, that for the believer the way up is down. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He might exalt you. And then in verse 7, He tells us how to humble ourselves. If you've got the NIV, the NIV makes a sentence break there. It's 7 looks like a separate command. It's not a separate command. It's actually an explanation of how you humble yourself before God. And that is casting all of your anxieties, all of your cares, all of the worries of this life on Him because He cares for you. That word casting literally means to hurl with all of your might. It's a word used to describe what a shot putter would do in an Olympic Games or a javelin thrower or with all your might, hurl your anxieties onto him. When we lived in Wichita several years ago, our neighborhood, the end of our neighborhood had a pond. And Jay and I, um, we'd love to go. We'd walk down there. He was younger, but we'd walk down there. And around the pond were all these rocks uh, around it. And so we'd get down there. We'd walk down there because what we liked to do is he'd take a rock and throw it into the pond. And, but he was little, and I, we were just talking to him about it last night. He said, yeah, man, I remember being scared of falling into the water. So he'd, he'd kind of stand at the rock's edge, and he'd pick up a rock and throw it and land just barely into the water, and he'd get a little more confident and get a little closer and throw the rocks a little farther. But when we really were firing on all cylinders of fun is when I'd get down behind him, sort of squat down, and I'd grab a hold of the back of his shorts there, and he'd pick up a rock and with all his might just hurl it with all his body. Because my hand held him secure. He knew he wasn't going to fall into the water. He could take with all his might and hurl. This is the idea Peter's getting at. 
with all your might. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God and with all your might hurl your anxieties on Him. What are you worried about? What's the cares that have you weighed down today? Peter says, hurl those upon to God. You know why? Because He cares for you. Well, it's the devil bad part of the sermon. Verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour someone. Here's a couple of things. Peter knows this. You, you have an enemy. You've got an enemy, and he will feign himself. He'll, he'll present himself as a roaring lion. Now, he prowls around looking for you. Now, he, here's who he's going to pick off. He's going to pick off the proud. You're easy to pick off if you're prideful. I just want to say that. You are lion bait in your pride. And I'll tell you who else is vulnerable. Those who are riddled with the anxieties and the cares of this world, thinking that somehow you're going to think your way out of the worries that you have. But what's interesting is, so he's a lion who roars. The reality is he's, he's all bark. For the one who humbles themselves before God, the one who's casting their cares before the Lord, listen, there's no bite. You know why he presents as a lion? Because he's the great deceiver. He's not the lion. He's not the true lion. He's not the lion of Judah. He is not the risen Christ who has defeated. So he comes. He seeks to devour you. So be sober-minded. Set your pride aside. Clothe yourself with humility. Those worries that, you, that keep you up at night, cast those. Hurl those upon God. He cares for you. And then he says in verse 9, resist Him. How do you resist Him? He says, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. We resist not by our willpower, not by incantations. We resist by faith, standing firm in our faith. Where, where, we, where he comes as the accuser, we answer that with faith. No, no, no. You can't accuse me. Everything that would ever be known or said about me was already settled 2,000 years ago. And Jesus, who's the advocate, is seated at the right hand of the Father, and I believe Him, I believe Him, I believe Him. And when He comes with temptation, stand firm in faith, believing God for the better things.
In 10, verse 10, he, he ends where he began. After you've suffered a little while, not if, but when, the God of all grace, who's called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish you. He'll restore you. He'll, he'll mend you. He'll make you whole. He'll, he'll confirm you, which means He'll, he'll st stand you up. He'll present you strong and established. And in verse 11, to Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's going to end here with some greetings by Silvanus, Silas. means he's the one that, that wrote this down. A faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring to you that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, means the church at Rome, that was the code for Rome back then, who, uh, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. You know, I th think sometimes we can be under the illusion or false hope that Christianity is meant to be an easy road. That, that I trust in Jesus and He solves all my worldly problems and my marriage will be better and my career will be successful and I'll have enough money in the bank. And if sickness comes, it won't come till I'm really old and then it'll be quick and I'll fade off into eternity in peace. And the reality is, is that we live in a world that's hostile. Hostile to believers, but this is not our home. We, we aren't in this for the temporary pleasures or the, or the temporary fixes that we've been saved for eternity. I want to tell you about John Bunyan as we close. He said, it, It's said in some countries trees will grow but will bear no fruit because there's no winter there. He lived in the 1600s and he was a great preacher but he had no formal education. He preached out in the countryside, he lived out in the countryside, but when he preached, thousands of people would come to listen to him. He didn't have any more than a third grade education, and he only had about five books his whole life. And John Owen, who was a contemporary of him, probably the greatest Puritan theologian and, and scholar par excellence, maybe nobody in the history of the church except for the Apostle Paul, was an equal 
to the theological and intellectual prowess of a John Owen. And when John Owen, who was very well regarded by kings and princes around the world, was asked by King Charles why he, a great scholar and renowned academic, would travel into the countryside to hear an uneducated tinker preach. Owen replied, I would willingly exchange my learning for the tinker's power of touching men's hearts. He would go on to say, I never more fully understood grace than when I listened to Bunyan preach. Well, Bunyan's arrested in 1660. He'll stay in prison for 12 years. The condition for him getting out was, hey, listen, just don't preach. He'd made the king mad because he wouldn't use the book of common prayer because he said he didn't need it. But he kept saying, listen, if you free me today, I'll preach tomorrow. So he stayed in prison for 12 years. Owen kept trying to get him out. He couldn't. It was one of Owen's great regrets in life that he could do no more for Bunyan than that. After 12 years, he finally prevailed. But it was while Bunyan was in prison and suffering and thought at several times he might face execution, he began to write. One of his writings, Pilgrim's Progress, it was at least 15 years ago, outside of the Bible, the most published book in the world. George Whitfield would say about Bunyan's writing, his work smells of the prison. Bunyan testified that in prison, God opened the word to him in ways that he'd never experienced outside of suffering. He says this, he can, he can make a jail more beautiful than a palace, restraint more sweet by far than liberty. And the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt. He would say after he was out of prison, what is it that got him through the dark times? He says, I tell thee, friend, there are some promises that the Lord hath helped me to lay hold of through Jesus Christ and by His holy word, so, so much that I would not trade them for as much gold and silver as could be stacked between York and London, piled to the stars. That the promises of Jesus I found to be more precious than anything. That's what Peter's been writing to us. I'll share you one of my favorite scenes in Pilgrim's Progress, and then we're going to take communion together. But in Pilgrim's Progress, the character Christian, he's in a dungeon, and the dungeon is the dungeon of the Doubting Castle. Maybe you have felt as though you've been in the dungeon of the Doubting Castle. And the scene goes like this. Christian says, what a fool I've been to lie in this stinking dungeon when I 
could have just well walked free. In my chest pocket, I have a key called promise that will, I am thoroughly persuaded, open any lock in Doubting Castle. Then said Hopeful, that's good news. My good brother, do it immediately. Take it out of your chest pocket and try it. Then Christian took the key from his chest and began to try the lock of the dungeon door. And as he turned to the key, the bolt unlocked and the door flew open with ease. And so Christian and Hopeful immediately stepped out. You know, Peter's been talking to us about the promises and the treasures and our identity and the work and the grace of Jesus. And though you may experience these various trials, you've been called to a hope to an eternal glory in the presence of God by the work of your Savior. So be encouraged. To Him is all dominion forever and ever. If you would, would you pray with me and then the men that are going to help with communion, if you would come forward. We rehearsed this morning. We remember the promise that we have in Jesus. The promise that He took all of our sin. He died in our place. He, he satisfied the debt we owed because of our sin. He lied dead in a grave for three days and then rose to new life and turns and offers us His grace received by faith. And so this morning as we take communion, we rest in the promise of all that He's done and that He is returning. And so if you would, let's pray and we'll go to the communion table. Father, we pray this morning that You would take this letter from the Apostle Peter. Father, one that we find ourselves identifying with. The, the ups and the downs, the discouragements, the failures, the sufferings. And yet, Father, a man who knew what it was to be restored and confirmed and strengthened and established in your Son, Jesus. Father, one that, that knew, although learned in ways that were very hard, much like ways we learned that are very hard, that it is better, it is best, it is what we were created for, to humble ourselves under your mighty hand. And that you exalt us. And that, Father, we with all faith and trust, can cast and hurl our cares upon you because you care for us. And so, Father, I pray that we
would take what Peter has written, that we would hide it in our heart. Father, you'd use it to change us and transform us and to make us more like your Son as we long ever more for his return. So, Father, that's how we pray. We pray in the name of your Son and declare that to him all dominion is his forever and ever. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at BethelBible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.